0: This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm.
1: Welcome to the Circuit of Success, and thank you for joining me. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait, but I believe the opposite. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude, a great belief system, and action every single day. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline and most importantly a vision, that's when greatness happens. Now let's dive right in to this week's guest. Welcome to the Circuit of Success podcast. I am your host Brett Gilliland and I have Bill Schmidt in the studio with us today. Bill, welcome to the show my friend. How are you? Thank
0: you. Good morning. Glad to be here.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, obviously, I, I've known you now for about a year and i uh, gotten to know your story of success. But why don't you take our listeners back to uh, what's made you successful in your life and uh, what's made you the man you are today? Just growing up,
0: I, I was always an athlete, always involved in sports, uh, played four sports in high school. Even to this day, I love hiring student athletes, people who've had to, you know, really, really fight to get somewhere. And I was certainly like that as a kid. You know, I, I look back uh there were there were good times and bad times, but uh, uh, you know the the good times of, of competing are uh, are, are kind of what really made me who I am. And and you know like I said, clearly some bad times as well. I do remember the time when I threw a tennis racket; it hit the side post of the net. My dad <laughs> took it away for two weeks, and I wasn't allowed to play, and it, it nearly killed me. Right, right. but um, you know just you know facing you know the adversity of competition. Um, you know, and then and then how that extended into my collegiate career. Um, you know, I uh, was a double E by training, electrical engineering at the University of Wisconsin. Um, one of the toughest things I ever did was was get through that major. Um, I spent the first two years at uh, at the university. You know, taking all of my undergrad uh, class, feeder classes, if you will. I did really well. I was on the dean's honor list for four semesters. In that first semester, junior year, as I entered. Uh, electrical engineering it it was a challenge they're trying to weed you out of those classes there were some people there who didn't have much of a social life I did (laughs) and uh as such, uh, you know they were there to study and get good grades, and, uh, and it was a tough semester. I had a 1.94. I w- after being four semesters of dean's honor list, I had a 1.94. I was put on academic probation. My parents were wondering what I was up to, mm-hmm. uh, but I fought through that tough period and learned a lot about myself in terms of the, just the discipline and the grind of, of you know, getting through something that was very challenging, and that's been reflected kind of throughout my career.
1: Yeah, I think it's amazing, isn't it? The times we <clears throat> learn the most are the times that were the most difficult. So, how do you? What do you think you learned most from that to then get you to where you are today? It taught me
0: a little bit about uh, my ability to to fully commit to something. Uh, as I mentioned to you just earlier, uh, you know, I kind of view success in, in in breaking it down very simply into two categories: um, being both committed and and being competent. Committed meaning uh, it is something that you absolutely want to do. And then being competent, meaning you actually know how to do it, whether it's a task or a job or what have you. Uh, if you break everything down to commitment and and uh, competence, as long as you have the skills in both those areas, it can be what helps. Helps get you through it and over the top, whatever it is. So, you know, in that particular instance, um, I had to really bear down. I found myself going from, uh, you know, having a lot of fun in college and studying as I thought it was appropriate to, you know, literally immersing myself in my studies. And I I still remember uh, junior and senior year after serving uh, the girls at the Kappa Kappa Gamma House come home, take a quick shower, and I'd go hit the library from 6 p.m. till midnight just about every day, Sunday through Thursday, clearly. Oh.
1: And uh, I would close down the library every night. It's big-time commitment right there. Big-time commitment. I wish I could say I did that in college. Those, you know, my parents are yeah. listening. They know I did not do that. <laughs> uh, so fast forward, you, you come out of college, um, you're a badger, and now you go to work. You're in medical sales. Um, and then tell us about that, how you transitioned from the way I explain it to people, from being a, a, a sales, being a medical sales, to an entrepreneurial spirit, to a business owner that was highly, highly successful, to now a venture capitalist. Right. How, do you, how do you make that transition uh, in your life?
0: Yeah, right. Uh, you know, the uh, the transition into healthcare in general was somewhat fortuitous. It was uh, moving into an apartment complex in St. Louis, and uh, just one day on a Saturday afternoon, sitting around the pool and meeting the regional manager for United States Surgical at the time, uh, that company could do no wrong. I'm talking uh, early 90s, 1992 um, they were the darlings of Wall Street. The stock split several times every year. Uh, they had introduced minimally invasive surgical instruments, which allowed surgeons to, uh, to remove uh, gallbladders, do work on the lungs, the intestinal tract, the stomach, uh, the uterus, you name it, hernia repairs. And we couldn't teach and train physicians fast enough. And it was a phenomenal time to be at that company. And uh, so I had met the regional manager, ended up uh, going through a very rigorous training course uh, that lasted six weeks. Uh, they sent you to Connecticut about 40% of the people failed the training. So you accepted a position with the company, and uh, about 40% of the people uh, at some point during that six-week period were sent home, and, and they were very proud of that, the uh, trainers were. right. And that, uh, well, I guess, you know, little Tim didn't take it so seriously, and so we gave him a plane ticket home this morning. And uh, they, <laughs> you know. Made sure you all knew that in training class, right? No question, right? Uh, but let me tell you what, you came out of that training and you know if any of us uh, had any fear of calling on doctors those those fears were were gone Uh, You knew the anatomy. You knew the procedure you were about to do. You knew your instrumentation, your competitor's instrumentation. You knew everything. And there wasn't a question that the doctor couldn't ask you during surgery uh, that you didn't know the answer to. uh,
1: That's no medical background at all, right? Without any medical
0: background, no. They sent you a, a binder about four inches thick with anatomy and surgical terminology and physiology, things like that, about a week before you went to training. And After a quick meet and greet, you had an exam the day you arrived, and if you got below a 90, they sent you home and said, well, I guess you didn't take this seriously. So wow. it, was, uh, it was an intense company. There was actually an article in Newsweek magazine. I think it was in 1992 off the top of my head. They actually wrote an article on our sales organization. You know, who writes an article on a field sales organization? But there were uh, we were highly trained, highly skilled, all alpha, males or females, <laughs> and uh, just very, very aggressive people. And there was an article, and it was it was titled, The Green Berets of Surgical Selling. And that model has since been replicated by, you know, the likes of Medtronic and St. Jude and Guidant and other, you know, major healthcare companies. But I think U.S. Surgical was really one of the first to to put that level of intensity in their training and have such a highly skilled uh, sales organization.
1: So being successful with that, obviously, you were doing well. I mean, for those of our listeners, I mean, I hear it all the time. Some of the biggest reasons people don't jump and follow their dreams is... Is their their ability? They were making good income, right? Right, and so you. I'm assuming we're making you know a great income at the time, and don't know if you had kids yet at this time or not. But how do you make that jump from hey, I know I'm going to make good income to now I'm going to go believe in Bill Schmidt, I'm going to believe in myself, and I'm going to make it happen. Right,
0: right, and there were um, you know, you know I, I I think that transition happened happened for a couple of different reasons. Um, uh, I left U.S. Surgical when I had lost faith in, in management. Uh, we were acquired by Tyco, and Tyco was trying to build a healthcare concern to compete with the likes of J and J, who was bundling all their products together in, in massive hospital contracts. So Tyco had purchased Malincrot here locally in St. Louis. Uh, they had purchased Kendall, and uh, had also purchased U.S. Surgical. And as we all know now, um, there were some accounting improprieties. Dennis Kozlowski and Mark Swartz, I think, are still in jail to this day yeah. uh, from that. And the stock took a precipitous drop. And I had uh, a couple of counterparts who worked with me at U.S. Surgical who worked for a, a firm called Catalina Health Resource in St. Louis. They had about 90 or so employees, and we're doing roughly 70 million or so in business. And they had a business whereby Uh, They were trying to help the pharmaceutical manufacturers drive medication adherence. And to make a long story short, the company was transitioning down to St. Petersburg, where they were owned by a parent, St. Petersburg, Florida, in uh, the Tampa area. And uh, my partners and I really didn't want to leave the company. And so uh, a decision was made to, to actually compete with them. Uh, We had uh, we never had a non-compete clause. Uh, We researched the company's patents and Kind of looked each other in the eye and said if it's if if we're ever gonna chase the American dream and do something for ourselves Now is the time personally. It was it was a tough period Uh, about four weeks after the birth of my third child Hmm. uh, Made a decision to do something on my own. Uh, My wife was looking at me like you (laughs) are crazy. Yeah and uh, and then to make it uh, maybe even more difficult, uh, we, we made a decision to self-fund it. And so rather than raise outside capital, um, we said, we'll self-fund it and put in a chunk of our own capital. And uh, we will pay ourselves when we are able to. So I went a period of almost 20 months whereby I didn't make a single penny. And we had uh, even begun to hire some employees. So we're paying their salaries, uh, but didn't put, uh, you know, not a penny in my pocket for 20 months, which was... Um, forget the financial aspects of that. Uh, the, the, that was a mental drain. That, that was yeah, tough. Yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, and in some respects, I believe that the, the mentality that we that we all took, my partners and I, was that, you know, look, if, if we didn't make something happen today or this week, you know, I can't feed my family on Saturday. That was, even even though we were able to, that was kind of the mentality that, that each of us took. And so we fought through that tough period collectively, uh, my partners and I, whereby... We were able to get the company in a position where uh, we had a, an initial contract offered up from a division of Johnson and Johnson, and uh, it was for about three hundred and forty thousand dollars. And from that point forward, we never looked back. And over a ten-year period, we built a company that you know generated north of fifty million in revenue, and, and then went through a you know a, a great exit after a very formal process of hiring an investment banking firm and then shopping it to both strategic and purely financial buyers, and then exited that company uh, in late 2014.
1: Probably uh, worked out well that you didn't make 20 months worth of uh, of money because you guys did it yourself. Therefore, when the exit happens, it's even better for you. Right, right. Congrats. Uh, What, what would you say your commitment level was on those days? You know, I I love the mental side of, of, uh, of the life and and what we got to do to battle through stuff. So what did you do mentally to stay focused and stay committed to your vision and everything you want to do to build that? Business.
0: Yeah, our dynamic was interesting. First of all, I should talk about that. Um, Five equal partners. Any mentor that you would you would speak to about you know how should you structure the management team uh, when you have five equal guys? uh, They're like one of you has got to be in charge, and none of us were were willing to relinquish that role to the other guy. And so we met every Monday for a couple of hours. We'd meet on Mondays noon to roughly two or two thirty and it was how we held ourselves accountable we each had a variety of roles in the in the business we all kind of had our hands in everything quite honestly but uh, you know we would discuss what was accomplished the prior week, what were our goals for the ensuing week and that was how we held each other accountable and to make that dynamic work we had to do one other thing and uh, and I think it was mission critical to us and we all agreed that we had to put the whatever decisions were made we had to put the best interests of the company first against any of our own personal, you know, agendas didn't matter if one of us had a kid going off to college, and and maybe it was uh, you know fifty or sixty thousand dollars of tuition, that didn't matter. That was irrelevant. We we had to make decisions that were solely based on what was best for the business, and uh, and and we did so. Uh, and that's not to say we didn't have shouting matches from time hmm. to time because we clearly did, but uh, at the end of the day, by putting uh, the company first. Uh, it allows us, allowed us to really, you know, drive the success of the company and the tempo of the company. Quite honestly, where we, you know, we, we were able to grow it as rapidly as possible.
1: And where, I mean, are you a reader? Do you? I mean, is it physical working out? I mean, how do you stay the positive mindset when you're when you're not making any yeah. dough?
0: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm not so much of a, a big book reader. I'm a. I'm a big. Uh, I need. I need a quick read. So I read magazines and newspapers okay. like there's no tomorrow. But you know, the way I de stress though, yeah, is to get away from the business and and do a workout. So I, I work out five or six days a week, generally for about an hour each day, uh, whether that's a, you know some cardiac uh, workout or aerobic workout uh, jogging or otherwise, or lifting weights. It's just, it, it's my time to get away. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I, I, think consciously too, uh, you know, when I left the office and we put in a lot of hours, but when I left the office, um, yeah, you know, I didn't even bring my laptop home. It was time to decompress and just get away and enjoy my kids. I've coached them in just about everything, whether it was you know baseball or soccer or basketball. I've I've coached my kids in a lot of different sports, and that was also my my time just kind of to kind of get away and
1: you know de stress. Absolutely. So, what would you say when you look back at that success? I mean, you know, well, we all define success differently. Um, what I like about you, Bill, is you have been very very successful financially. But it's never about that for you. So, how, how do you define success uh, today?
0: Yeah, <clears throat> well, in some respects, um, you know, I want my legacy to be that I've, uh, you know, had a had a, a great family. Uh, I've raised, you know, three fantastic kids. I do have a middle child who has Down syndrome, so he's uh, special needs. You know, clearly, uh, when my wife and I were married, that probably wasn't part of our plan. He he's a, a special kid. He's impacted our family in a variety of ways. Probably some of the most, you know, special aspects of it are that I I look at my other two kids, my oldest son, who's now 20 and a sophomore over at Vanderbilt, uh, and then my daughter, who's 13 and in seventh grade, they both have a certain level of maturity about them that is uh, extra special. And it's in part from, you know, seeing the struggles that their brother has. And mind you, he's a great kid and he's doing fantastically well, but they really have uh, compassion. They have a certain amount of patience from, you know, dealing with their brother at times. And and it's really impacted our family positively. And and he's just a phenomenal kid. I mean, we would not trade him for the world today.
1: That's awesome. So what are you doing now today? Obviously, you're a venture capitalist today. I mentioned earlier, yeah, you know, representing uh, Cultivation Capital. That's the company uh, you're partner in. Tell us about that today. When I, when I, uh, my partners and I
0: made a decision to transition uh, out of our business and, and go through an exit, we were looking for an all cash deal. We had to put a management team in place uh, in order to do so. Somebody that could stand for 18 or 24 months with a prospective buyer, and so. Uh, we conducted a nationwide search put a president in place and for a period of time uh, my partners and I transitioned out and there was a, a Monumental day around the Schmidt house where my wife looked at me and I was literally didn't know what I was gonna do And she asked me, you know, what are you up to today? And I said, I don't know And she pointed down to the baseboards in our kitchen and <laughs> said and you're how well, old the, of this time I was uh, uh, I guess I was 49, 48,
1: okay. right around there. And, so a young man.
0: Yeah, and she said, uh, you know, well, the baseboards are kind of scuffed up. Why don't you touch up the baseboards? And I thought, my gosh, I've, I've got to get out of the house and do something. <laughs> and uh, through a very fortuitous meeting, I was introduced to Brian Matthews, who was the managing partner of the Technology Fund for Cultivation Capital. And after a couple hours of meetings with Brian and understanding their investment thesis, the uh, the GPs, the general partners on the on the team and their backgrounds, made a decision to join the fund as a limited partner and make an investment. And uh, it was shortly thereafter, Brian introduced me to Capital Innovators and I began to mentor uh, some startups. Uh, They're a 12-week accelerator program. So I was handed the role of lead mentor for a specific company in the Capital Innovators program. And Brian and I actually were working alongside each other for uh, a 12-week period once a week on Wednesdays. We were together uh, pretty much all day. I guess it was around week 10 of one of the sessions where Brian approached me and uh, and said, look, we're, we're looking to create a, a life sciences fund under the Cultivation Capital brand. And uh, we need somebody to serve as the glue and put the uh, general partners together and, uh, you know, form the team, get everything papered and docked with state and federal agencies and and begin the the capital raise. And so we went about that. I'm fast forwarding here to uh, June of 2013. We had everything ready to go. And here we are. Uh, Our first fund is closed to new investments. We have 14 portfolio companies that uh, kind of run the gamut of of life sciences, everything from agricultural technology to healthcare IT to medical devices to uh, therapeutics, think small molecule drug discovery, and then uh, another bucket called uh, tools and reagents, which I always categorize as kind of diagnostic equipment. Fourteen investments, that fund is now closed, as I mentioned, in new investments. And uh, we're on to our second fund and looking to close our our first investment here in the next, uh, probably in the next two weeks.
1: Well, congrats. I know it's been very, very successful. Can you walk our listeners through... One of the, I remember you talked about strokes and something that's going on overseas, and and can you walk us through what's going on and some of those trials that, you know, hopefully there's going to be life-saving devices that we have uh, here in America?
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'll talk specifically about one of our portfolio companies in the stroke space. It's called Pulse Therapeutics. Pulse has a really, really uh, novel technology, and uh, I should probably uh, set it up a bit. If you are uh, diagnosed with a stroke, and certainly I think probably all your listeners uh, know somebody who's been diagnosed with a stroke or has suffered from a stroke, and they're very, very debilitating. If you, uh, you know, have a stroke and you're fortunate enough to be diagnosed within three and a half hours or so of the onset. Typically, uh, at a stroke center in the United States, they will inject a drug called TPA, tissue plasminogen activator, and it's an ultra-strong clot buster uh, designed to clear, it, to clear the clot. Part of the problem with uh, delivery of TPA, though, is that in the artery that is uh, impacted by the uh, stroke, the blood flow is stagnant. So um, there's a blood clot, and clearly the blood flow in that artery is stagnant. And so uh, the delivery of TPA to the clot site can be somewhat challenging. So what stroke does is they come in with uh, nano-sized particles of iron ferrite, and uh, they inject those behind the TPA that uh, travel through your bloodstream, and then they place a magnet up around the crown of your head, and they flip a switch and turn the magnet on, which rotates the magnets at about 180 RPMs and causes the iron ferrite particles to essentially travel through the arterial system and walk along the arterial wall to the site of the clot to more effectively deliver TPA by virtue of acting as uh, essentially little magnetic stirring rods. And so uh, we're real excited about the company right now. Um, We are just in the throes of initiating clinical trial in Europe. We have a couple of sites that have gone uh, live and we're hoping to do our first patients in the clinical trial this month, in, in the month of February here in 2017. The goal is to obviously deliver more effectively TPA and, and uh, positively impact uh, clinical outcomes for stroke patients.
1: Unreal. And so all those are the types of companies that you all are investing in and that's in the portfolio and, Correct. and investments. Well. Wow. Uh, I'm glad somebody like you is doing that and not me so uh, we appreciate all that work what would you say you know now especially but you know in your past what did you do to develop key relationships to get that you know that big sale you talked about that really kind of define the company and help get the company off of where it went, never went back. So how do you define those uh, those key relationships?
0: We had the advantage of having some experience. You're referring to the company LDM that I had? Yes. Right. Yeah, we had some advantage in that uh, we all worked for uh, Catalina Health Resource, which was, uh, you know, they had a product, uh, you know, in our space. And so we had some experience and had some key relationships. So whether it was uh, at Pfizer or Glaxo or Merck or any of the you know the major pharmaceutical manufacturers. We had some existing relationships, and we pretty clearly leaned on those relationships to help, you know, get the company off the ground. Uh, you know, we had to build uh, a couple of networks of retail pharmacies and physicians' offices, where we whereby we had the ability to deliver educational content or therapeutic information uh, regarding the uh, medications that we were communicating to patients on behalf of the pharmaceutical manufacturers for. But there was an odd dynamic as well in that as a startup, you run the risk of failing. And even though I may have a great relationship with somebody at, at Pfizer as one example, they're about to sign a contract and you know put $100,000 or $250,000 worth of their capital on the line and we go out of business, that's a poor reflection on their decision as a, as a brand manager. And so there was a a bit of a give and take. You know, we had to, in some respects, uh, you know, prove that we were going to be around and and get beyond a point of, call it critical mass, uh, where the the risk of our going out of business was behind us. Uh, And yet then there were other people who literally took a leap of faith and said, I believe in you. I believe in what you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, and signed on the dotted line and, and, uh, you know, and, and helped drive our early revenues. So uh,
1: kind of an interesting dynamic there. Absolutely. So what when you talked about earlier, you talked about um, you got to have competence and you got to have commitment. What right. would you tell the listeners right now that, you know, we all have a certain level of commitment, but how do you take that commitment to the next level and really, I mean, what would you say? I mean, is that just interior? I mean, is it internal? What is that?
0: everybody faces adversity in life. Um, So when I talk about commitment, it's finding that something extra to fight through that tough period, whatever it may be. You know, I I go back to when we formed LDM, my partners and I, I'm not sure that any one of us, if we were CEO and going about this alone and self-funding the company that way as, as an individual, if we would have ever made it through that tough period. I think in some respects, knowing that my partners were, were having the same struggles I was in the first 15 to, to 20 months. I, I remember around month 15, uh, in one of our Monday meetings, I, you know, I, I said to my partners at the end, I said, you know, look, I, I've got maybe 45, 60 days left, and, and I, I can't do this any longer if we don't get some good news. And as soon as I said that, everybody at the table said, yeah, me too, <laughs> me too, me too, right? We were all in the same boat fortunately for for uh, right after I had that conversation uh, it was maybe seven to ten days uh, at, thereafter we had that contract come in from Johnson and Johnson and never looked back but I think in some respects you know it was leaning on others who were who were in the same boat as you, and knowing that they were suffering, I think it allowed me to to get through those initial pain points of of you know it's tough building a business I mean right. there's a reason why ninety or ninety five percent of them fail right. and I think that there's a lot of great business ideas out there, but perhaps the founders aren't willing to fight through that tough period where you have no revenue, no clients, you're, you're, you're building infrastructure and it's, it's a mental, it's lonely. It's lonely. It's lonely out there. Right. Yeah. But the fact that there were five of us that were collectively, we were all in it together. I really think that, that, that dynamic in,
1: in many respects helped us get through that period. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you've met Tim Hammett, my business partner in, in uh, visionary and, it's one of the things we always say. We joke on the phone. Thank God we have each other. You know, you'd go crazy. I'd go crazy by myself. So right. I'm, I'm happy to have him. So I absolutely agree with that. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the commitment side. What about competency? I mean, how do, how do you grow that? If you're a person right now and, and somebody's working out or they're riding their car and they're listening to this and they're like, gosh, I'd love to take a step before buddies and do this. I mean, right. what's the competency? How did you develop that? What did you do to make that happen? Yeah,
0: right. You know, I, I don't profess to, uh, you know, have all the answers. So, you know, you're leaning on on uh, friends. You know, I do a ton of networking. Um, there are certain people that I looked up to, mentors, including my father who was around when we initiated the company. You know, just, just continually asking questions on, on what, what are the optimal ways to handle, you know, any situation in business. Um, you know, educating yourself, asking others uh, inclusive of our clients. What's the best way to communicate to patients? You know, how can in this setting of a retail pharmacy, how can we effectively communicate to them? What's the message? How many messages can we have? You know, can we can we have three or four? Should it be one or two so we're not confusing the readers? You know, and, and it's just leaning on others to and, and continually taking in data points and pearls of information. Uh you know, and I think just then, you know, internalizing that and using it to the best of your abilities is, is, is how you build your
1: competency. So what would the fifty what are you, fifty, fifty one, does it matter? Fifty three ish time flies. Yeah, yeah, time flies. So fifty-three year old Bill tell the the forty year old Bill and tell the thirty year old Bill.
0: Mm, interesting. The thirty year old Bill, uh I think probably my primary message would be the the best investment that you'll ever make is in yourself. You know, I I jokingly say, you know, you can work for a large company and you can have success that way and ride the corporate ladder. Uh, And in some respects, I I jokingly say, you know, in that setting, you're sucking on the company pacifier. Mm -hmm. So you've got your, you know, you've got your nice salary and your bonus plan and your 401k and maybe you you know profit sharing or, or something like that but you know that that's one way to do it but nothing will ever compare to the return that I saw on investing in myself and, and building a company founding a company and building a company Amen. Um, and so I did it at the age of 40 um, would have been nice to do it at the age of 30 um, you know Uh, At the age of 30, I had no kids, (laughs) less, you know, just able to take on more risk at that point in time. But maybe, you know, in in some respects, too, you know, had no idea at the age of 30 about how to go about it. But, you know, in some respects, I I, I would probably recommend that I would have taken that leap at that time and just learned along the way. How many
1: of the fears that you had when you were 30 and 40 and, you know, and heck, even still today, I mean, this is one of the things I always like to talk about is how many of the fears that you put in your own mind? actually came true?
0: You know, my biggest fear in starting my own company was pretty clearly if this fails and I have crushed my savings during the the, the first couple of years, you know, of self-funding a company. My biggest fear was that I may have just added 10 or 15 years to my working life, right? You know, how will I fund my kids' college and, and things of that nature? And there was no easy way to get through that. Other than you know, as I mentioned earlier, treating every day like I had to make something happen positively, or I wouldn't be able to feed my family the ensuing weekend, mm-hmm. you know, and it was just having that mentality is what got my, myself and my partner through. We all shared that same mentality. Yeah.
1: So I guess the point being is, reason why I asked the question is none of them came true. Right. Right? right. I mean, because we build it up in our minds, right? Like, oh, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to add 15 years. I can't send my kid to Vanderbilt. Right. All these things that go through our mind. But when you have the competence and you have the commitment, it doesn't happen. Right. right? And I think so many times in our lives, so many people, we fear to go do things. We, we fear to take action because of what we think is on the other side. Right. But rarely when I sit down with successful people, did it ever come true right exactly right? so yeah now would you say um, when you look at your success did you envision your success or are you are you surprised by it
0: uh, you know in some respects, uh surprised by it I think it's rare for you know that first time entrepreneurs my partners and I normally see a failure or two before somebody's really successful there's no question there's some good luck along the way right when I when I felt like at month fifteen our company was in the you know, ICU. Within a month, we had a great contract come in, and uh, and never looked back. But our ability to just stay committed and stay true to our goals of building a great company, and it turned out, you know, better than I had dreamed. You know, I, I think initially on I had uh, a figure in my mind as to what I would like to retire on, and you know, we we drove right through those metrics. You know, I've made made more money than I than I ever imagined. And, uh, it, you know, it was just so gratifying. In some respects, I miss having my baby. I mean, we went through a great exit. You know, we were in a regulated industry. There are a lot of different reasons why it was the right time to sell. Um, but in some respects, I miss having my baby. You know, I yeah. took a lot of pride in in uh, building a great company. I mean, we had close to 50 employees when we sold the business and, you know, their livelihood depended on decisions we made as, as business owners and took a lot of pride in that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh,
1: What's your purpose now? What's your vision when we look at what's the 63-year-old Bill uh, see out there?
0: You know, I'm enjoying venture capital work. I love looking at the deal flow just as one example. I think our fund looked at close to 400 deals and ended up choosing 14 companies just to put some metrics behind it. So I love looking at the deals, seeing what entrepreneurs are, are working on. You know, my advice is always free. I'll sit down with any entrepreneur at any time and give them feedback on their business. I love the board service. So, you know, using my operational experience of building a great company uh, uh, to help uh, help drive, uh, you know, the, the companies that we work with. And it's... Uh, you know, getting involved with their key hires, their uh, their capital strategy, um, clearly their business strategies. Um, I, I really enjoy that. So I'm, I'm currently on the board of uh, five separate companies. Uh, and then uh, you know, there's there's the fundraising, which is eh, so so. Right, right. Always <laughs> but, fun asking yeah, right, for money, right? Right. Yeah. yeah what,
1: what's your perfect day today? So you get up in the morning. What do you? Yeah. Know, what's your perfect well, day? Perfect day. Uh, you know, get up,
0: uh, go have a quick workout. Um, what time you get up in the morning? Usually get up around six fifteen ish. Okay. Uh, go have a quick workout, uh, take my daughter to school, head into the office, and then it's uh, you know engaging uh, with all things related to Cultivation Capital. Yeah. So it's uh, working with the entrepreneurs of the current portfolio companies. That's predominantly how I occupy my mornings, and you know fundraising activities, coffees, lunches, things yeah. of
1: that nature yeah. with a variety of people. Awesome. Uh, you were, in 2008, the torchbearer for the Beijing Olympics. Yes. I, don't, I think you're the only guy I know that actually is was a torchbearer. So why don't you tell our listeners, how, how did that come about? How, I mean, that was got to be a pretty right. cool experience. It
0: was an unbelievable experience. Never forget it. I'd love to say that I did something that was very, very unique. Um, at the end of the day, I did... Nothing that was any any different than what you or anybody else would have done. Uh, I was the first responder, if you will, uh, to a very bad car accident during an ice storm up in Wisconsin. So it was early in the morning, and um, my wife and I and our kids were heading back from uh, the holidays. Uh, I was staying with my my brother. My dad called in the morning and said, hey, this storm's coming earlier, and the ice is going to be hitting in in about an hour. You might want to leave town. And so we left real early in the morning, and we were driving along I-43, heading from Milwaukee to Rockford. And uh, everybody in the car was sleeping except for me. And uh, I saw a red Chevy Blazer cross over a bridge on the interstate coming in the opposite direction. And it rolled, you know, roof to wheels, roof to wheels, three or four times, and landed on its roof. And uh, I saw it happening, happening up ahead of me. So um, I uh, immediately pulled over on the shoulder and I handed my cell phone to my wife and said, "Call 911." I was dressed in this is this is really odd. My wife, to, <laughs> my my vehicle didn't have dual zone heating and cooling, and she was always freezing. So I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and it was 25 degrees in an ice storm. Ooh. I ran across about a 40-yard median, down a ravine, and up the other side of the ravine. And uh, you know, the wanted to make sure everybody in the car was okay. They weren't. Uh, I got the mother and the daughter out of the back seat. Uh, the the father was was pinned in, still attached to his seat belt. His legs were uh, crushed between uh, the uh, like the floorboard and the dashboard and and the seat. He was upside down screaming his head off so you know i i helped calm him down and in the whole meantime i'm you know smelling for fuel leaking right looking for oncoming traffic you know and it was just but i i didn't do anything extra special other than i received an email after having purchased a samsung cell phone i received an email from sang samsung and and the headline on the email was have you ever used your samsung cell phone in an emergency situation if so, tell us about it. And I never reply to things like that via email. Right. And, and literally, as I was about to hit delete on the email, I thought, you know, I've got a pretty good story. So I typed up, I think it was 300 words or less, kind of essentially what happened. And lo and behold, I got a call maybe six months later from Samsung that said I was one of five grand prize winners, and they wanted me to be a torchbearer in the Beijing Olympics. And unbeknownst to me, you actually have, uh, unless you're an honorary uh, torchbearer, you have to have demonstrated an act of heroism. And they considered what I did an act of heroism, staying with the, w- with the people and, you know, until emergency services arrived. And, uh, and so they made me a torchbearer, which was uh, just an unbelievable experience. And, and I don't know how many of your listeners will remember the uh, 2008 Olympics, but China had cracked down on, uh, on Tibet and sent troops in, in a couple of months prior and the only city in North America that was going to get the torch was uh, San Francisco and there were only 80 torchbearers in all of North America. And so I was one of 80 and uh, because of the uh, China's crackdown in Tibet um, and the large Asian population in San Francisco, uh, there were uh, massive protests going on uh, over the torch relay. And so we were supposed to uh, carry the torch. Uh, I was supposed to carry it about a quarter mile by myself. Um, and the torch was going to go from um, the old uh, candlestick and work its way all the way towards the Golden Gate Bridge. And there were, uh, it was estimated there were all north of a million spectators, including my wife and my oldest son, um, who had a security detail with them along the uh, torch route. And uh, I'll never forget the, the two buses filled with torch bears, 40 in each. And I was on the first bus and I was supposed to be the 12th person carrying the the torch. And Mayor Gavin Newsom got on the bus, held his hands together and looked at us and said, the torch route has been compromised. Uh, The police are having a hard time opening it back up. So we are going to do something different. And he said, we're gonna go a couple blocks up here to Van Ness and the bus is gonna stop and we're gonna get out and we're gonna carry the torch in pairs. And so I carried it with a, uh, a woman from Boston, and uh, instead of carrying it a quarter mile, I carried it in a pair, uh, about three city blocks. <laughs> mm. yeah. But let me tell you, um, you don't pass the torch, you pass the flame. Uh, the firefighter who put the flag in on top of the rubble after Mayor Rudy Giuliani mm. handed him the flag when the Twin Towers fell in New York City, he and uh, the Olympic athlete, um, Uh, A volleyball player. Uh, They they lit our torch, and the second that the girl from Boston and I turned around to begin, you know, jogging with the torch, I had an adrenaline rush unlike any I've ever felt in my entire life. I mean, I, I was. Jacked. Oh, I can't imagine.
1: <laughs> it, was, it was surreal. And, uh, I mean, I, I— Well, especially from that guy. I mean, everybody knows the moment you're talking about on the—with uh, Rudy Giuliani there. Right. And
0: Wolf Blitzer was speaking—I was live on CNN jogging with the torch, and uh, Wolf Blitzer was speaking in the background from a helicopter above, you know. And uh, because I was in the sixth pair at that point, uh, people were just pouring out of the office buildings, and already it was three or four people deep. Um, where the torch was going because it was all over the news. And it was just, it was, it was a pretty incredible moment.
1: Well, I normally ask what's one of the best days of your life besides the birth of your children and your wedding day. But that, you know, unless you've got something else, that's, that, that's no, probably that's it. That's
0: probably right, that's re- probably right, right there, what it is, yeah.
1: Another question I always ask, and I, you know, people find it fascinating, is if I give you 10 million bucks today, I'm just going to write you a check. You can't invest it and you can't donate it to charity. What are you doing?
0: Hmm. I can't invest it. So uh, I assume we're talking spending it?
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. oh. Well, you, a lot of people said they're going to do basically what you do for a living, right? They're going right. to invest in I, startups, yeah. so we can allow that. Oh, uh, I but think, you can't you invest know. it like in stocks and mutual funds and all that fun stuff. So
0: I can't invest it. So, uh, you know, in terms of spending, I don't know. I'm probably uh, looking for a place in the mountains somewhere where I could uh, you know, go skiing and do things of that nature. Um, probably looking for a place. Uh, In a beachy type environment waterfront somewhere maybe down in the Virgin Islands uh, maybe in Florida and uh, you know I I would probably take the balance of that and travel the world Uh, love to travel Um, it's one of my favorite things to do usually uh, like to take my wife and kids on a a major vacation at least once a year where we're gone for a couple of weeks obviously that's absolutely what's the best
1: vacation spot you've been on
0: really love Italy a couple years ago took the entire family Uh, we did uh, England and Italy Fell in love with Italy. Uh, You know, we did uh, Venice, Florence, Rome, uh, probably one of my favorite days. Uh, We took the high-speed rail down to uh, Naples or Napoli, as they like to say, and we went out to the island of uh, Capri. We say Capri, they say (laughs) Capri, and uh, that is one of the most beautiful islands on the face of the earth. Just had uh, just a phenomenal time. Loved Rome. I mean, my time in Rome and, and all the sights. Uh, Florence, the same. Venice, I mean, a city on water. I, we, it's just a spectacular place to go visit.
1: So in closing, one of my favorite things, you know, you look back in history and, and uh, JFK said, you know, we're going we're gonna to send a man to the moon, right? Mm-hmm. The moonshot." And uh, at that time, we didn't even have NASA. We had nothing. And, right. and so uh, I think he said that in 1962 or three or somewhere right. in there. And then by 1969, 69. we put a man on the moon. Unfortunately, he didn't get to see that. But What's, what's your moonshot? I mean, what if you could just kind of, you know, had a, a piece of paper right here and you could decide something, what's your moonshot? Right. You know, I'd probably uh, uh, go right back to the, uh, and
0: look across our current portfolio companies. Um, you know, we're looking at doing some great things, um, you know, helping to solve atrial fibrillation, helping to solve stroke. But, you know, one of the one of the biggest, you know, moonshots, if you will, for us in our portfolio, uh, a company called uh, Immunophotonics. And uh, you know they're they're working on trying to cure patients of stage four breast cancer and and melanoma, you know, and curing cancer. You know, it's a very debilitating disease. And you know, if uh, if they're able to pull off what they're doing, getting the body's own immune system to fight the cancer cells wherever they reside in your body, um, you know, that that would be
1: high on my wish list. That'd be that'd be phenomenal. And yeah I think we hear this a lot. My wife and I have a our charity for cancer that you know about and and some people believe that. People aren't really trying to cure cancer because there's so much money in the cancer world. I, I get frustrated when I hear that, but but I do hear that a fair amount. And so I think what you're saying is you would disagree with that comment that when people say they're not trying to find a cure for cancer, there's people busting their humps every single day to do that. Right,
0: no question. And I'm a believer at 53 that you know in my lifetime we will see uh, cures for for certain types of cancer.
1: Well, I hope you're right. Where can our listeners find uh, find more about you and and find you a social media guy? Or are you uh, you know?
0: Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I do tweet occasionally. You know, probably the the easiest way is, um, you know, I'm in I'm in pretty deeply involved in the startup community here in town. So at a variety of startup events, uh, you know, Cultivation Capital has been talked about quite a bit in the Business Journal, uh,
1: and so there's there's ample ways to find me. Got it. We'll find you. Well, Bill, I appreciate you being a guest today on the Circuit of Success podcast. It was uh, it's been a pleasure having you. Appreciate well, it, my friend. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it.